0: we look at this letter this morning, the Apostle John continues to demonstrate to us an aspect of what it means to be authentically Christian. And it's a beautiful part that is misunderstood, but essential that we get. So as we come to the text uh, this morning, we'll be looking at uh, the end of chapter 2, verses 28, uh, and reading through chapter 3, verse 3 this morning. But before we come to the Word, we're going to ask the Lord that He would speak to us. Father, we commit ourselves to worship you, we commit ourselves to your word, and I I pray now that we would be a people who worship you by listening for your voice, recognizing that it is you who is speaking through this word, and that we are in need, and that we would hang on every word that you have recorded for us, and that your spirit would speak to us what is necessary, that you would break down the walls of our own hearts that would block out the benefit of the word you've granted us, that we may feel the full force, the full effect, and the full grace of what you have given to us through the Apostle John. Bless us that you may shape us, that we may bless others and honor you as we worship you in your word in this time. We pray this in the name of Christ, the word incarnated. John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Purifies himself as he is pure. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. As I recall, there is a scene in the play, Little Orphan Annie. When Annie first comes to her new home, the home of Daddy Warbucks, Daddy Warbucks has spent no little effort and no little expense in reorienting his entire estate to become Annie's playground. And now the day has arrived when he brings her home in his luxurious car. Everything is in pristine shape, condition. And they enter into the doors of his mansion with the full staff assembled on both sides, leading, creating kind of an alleyway toward the grand stairways. Annie walks into the, into the foyer of this beautiful home looking around speechless because she's never seen anything like this. She's been in homes Mostly orphanages and foster homes, but never seen anything this palatial. And after a quiet moment, Daddy Warbucks just asks Annie a simple question. Well, Annie, what, what do you think? And she says, it's beautiful. And he allows a little more time to go by, and, and he says, well, Annie, where would you like to begin? And she pauses for a moment and says, well... Get me a bucket, I'll start with the stairs. It's a sad and yet beautiful story that Annie clearly misses the point of what is hers now. Because of her background, because of rejection, because of feeling unloved, being unloved, it is beyond her ability to comprehend that somehow this was all hers, that this man of means, for no other reason than that he loved her, had made her his own, and that everything that was his now was hers as well. She couldn't comprehend it. While she was now the, an heiress, she still has the mindset of an orphan. That story is something that continues to come back to my mind because it reminds me that all of us want have a place, to be part of a people that are part of our family. All of us want to be accepted. Yet many of us, most of us, perhaps all of us, have been conditioned to realize, to to feel like our place, our belonging is conditional. And while we know that we have family and we have blessings, Many people feel and live as if they are orphans, at least as if they are spiritual orphans. For those who struggle with that mindset, the idea that somehow we can be loved with a love that is encompassing, and that God is the one who has loved us in this way, John has some very encouraging, beautiful, and important words. Because the essence of what John says in what we read this morning is this, is that because of the Father's great love for us, he has made us his children through Christ. And because we are his children, that new identity, we are distinguished from everyone else in the world. What I want to do this morning is to look at each of those aspects, as John has revealed it, as an encouragement, maybe even a life change, those of us who are gathered here we begin with the love that the father has lavished on us when we read this looking at verse 1 john really can't contain himself and i will have a caveat and the esv the esv doesn't cut it at this point i mean the esv you read it see what kind of love the father has given to us it's kind of like check it out you know package come what's in the package see what's there see who's at the door I mean, that's not necessarily, the the text doesn't demand that reading, but it certainly is a a reasonable way of dealing with that text. That's not what John is saying. The NIV is much better in this situation because John uh, is is completely captivated with this and as he's communicating, and then the NIV expresses it much better, and John is saying this, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I mean, John is absolutely amazed. You can sense his... His, the awe that he is experiencing whenever he is, is contemplating this thing that he has seen something like it before, but this is unlike anything he's, he's seen before. I look at it this way, kind of going back, thinking in the back, he's kind of like Cookie Monster for the first time seeing a double Oreo, chocolate covered. I mean, he's seen cookies, but something like this, this is just amazing. And he just is just ecstatic, and we can just really just kind of feel the intensity of what John is saying when we look at, look at this. And what John is saying is not only is he amazed, but we should be amazed at the Father's love as well. John is saying, look at what kind in the ESV or How great is the love that the actual Greek translation there is that would, would literally be translated rather than what kind or how great is from what country. From what country is this love? Theologian John Stott, as he's talking about this particular uh, passage, captures John's emotions this way. The Father's love is so unearthly, so far into this world, that John wonders what country it may come from. In other words, when we consider God's love, it is so different than anything else that we would experience, anything else that is in this world, it's so foreign to us. We realize that it comes from another world. And it's not even just that it's a great love that's been given to us, as the text indicates. And it is given to us. It's not something we've earned, not something we have deserved. But the text actually talks about it as being lavished on us as a better translation. Again, the ESV being far superior in, in, in communicating what John is trying to say here. It's lavish. It's just poured out. It's just unending. It's a fountain. It's continuing. Something that's given is just a transaction. Something that's lavished is continuing. I was given a driver's license recently. I went down and gave them my old license, filled out hundreds of pages of paper. They handed me a temporary license that was about six inches thick and told me I would be receiving my other license in the mail. It finally came and so I am now a licensed Virginia, no longer a Tennessee driver. It's a transaction. They gave me something. It wasn't earned. It wasn't deserved. Driving is a privilege. I get all that. I have that. Am I excited? I think you can tell. That's not what John is talking about. John, in his excitement, he's saying, this love the Father has given, he didn't give us love. He's lavished. It's just kind of, it's just flowing. It just, it's a fountain. It just continues. It's being poured. We're showered in it, and it never ends. That's what John is talking about, the love that is just being heaped on us by God our Father. And what, the one place in this text where the ESV is better than the NIV is at the beginning of verse 1, where the ESV says, see what kind... The NIV leaves the word see, or the was translated see, out entirely. But there is a word there. Whether it's see or, or look, or better yet, is behold what kind of love the Father has, or behold how great the love the Father has. Uh, the word there, whether you look at it as look, see, it's a command. It's not an incidental. It's, it's saying, look, see, behold, which behold's better because it, it really captures everything, saying, Really look and really consider and ponder and meditate upon the love that the Father has here. John's wanting us to take a serious gaze and consider and just ruminate about this love that is being poured out upon us. John's not saying, hey, this is great love. It's a shower. And then just kind of pretend like there's nothing going on. Just know that you're being showered with love and go about your business. John's saying that our attention, our focus, it's, it's a command that we look and we consider. And it's an ongoing command. And just think about that love that God has poured on us. And that love is best demonstrated in the cross. John will get to it in a few verses later in this chapter. In 1 John 3, 16, he says this to us. We, by this we know love. He laid down his life for us. That's the love. That's the love that, lets, that, that has been poured out upon us. One that loves us so much that would lay down his life. Paul goes a little further, giving adding descriptions, saying, we know what love is because... While we were Christ's enemies, he died for us. Few people would die for good people. Christ died for us while we were his enemies. We get a big picture of the love, the intensity, and then the love that would not only motivate him to love us, but lavish that kind of love upon us. And John's saying, look at this, consider this, meditate upon this, understand this, ponder this over and over. One of the reasons that he's instructing us to do that is because God's love instructs us. God's love instructs us when we understand or we're pondering it in different aspects of our lives. It instructs us when we are undergoing difficulties and trials. It instructs us when we have fear. It instructs us when we are experiencing criticism or fear of criticism or fears that, of what might happen because of criticism. One would think that over the years with the criticism that I've both earned and received, which are not always the same, I would have developed the hide of a rhinoceros by now. And while I have learned that not all criticisms bother me, a lot of criticisms do. I can't tell you why some do and some don't necessarily. It's not the source. It's not necessarily the timing. But for some reason, some still get under my skin. I feel when those times happen at a time similar to a time when I was in high school, which was one of the most vivid, early kinds of pain from criticism that I can recall that, that lasted and endured. It's not that I never received or was pained by it, but it was a, a lasting memory. I had the opportunity when I was in high school to be quarterback of our high school football team. We were pretty good, we were ranked in the top five in the state of Tennessee. And we were playing one, a school from across town, who was also ranked in the top five in the the state of Tennessee. And in that particular game, I didn't play particularly well. Some things I did well, but at least two plays um, people thought were not particularly helpful, at least if you were from my school. (laughs) On two plays, relatively simple plays, plays I've done many times, plays I could literally do in my sleep. I was just uh, optioning and pitching to the guy to to carry somebody else to carry the ball. Something very simple. The guy's about five feet from me. And both times, as I was starting to pitch, I got hit. The ball shoots straight up in the air. And somebody from the other side picked it up and runs it back for a touchdown. Two times. One time, that's enough for people to be angry. Two times, that's not allowed, at least not at my high school. We lost by 13 points. So I could have done it once and maybe survived. Bad as I feel, the paper comes out the next day talking about a game because it had two state-ranked teams, and I don't remember the actual quote at this point, but I do remember the gist of it, and the gist was very close to Overton High School loses the game in no small part because of the subpar, I read poor, performance of quarterback Dennis Griffith. That's almost unheard of in high school reporting now. Should have been unheard of then. I take great solace in the fact that it, two years later, that paper disbanded and doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> the Nashville banner no longer exists. You can't even find it online. There is a God of justice. Now, um, and, <laughs> but not only was that a stinging thing, and then the effect of that that just kind of lingers. So at times, I, 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 when I, whenever a criticism bothers me, it, I realize I'm... I've not, even, I've not come very far from being an insecure 17-year-old kid. It was a long time later that it, it dawned on me that when I allow criticism to really bother me, not to hit and perhaps make something corrective, but to truly bother me, the problem is that I am focusing on the criticism more than what I am focusing on John instructed me to focus on, which is the love of the Father. The criticism may be right or wrong, but if it is just nagging and continuing to shape and grieve, it's because I'm focused so much on that criticism, my own either insecurity or reputation, whatever it may be that involved here, and I'm not actually thinking about the love the Father has lavished upon me. Now, think about it. Had I had the maturity and the understanding back when I was 17 year high school student, And I read that newspaper, and then I'm able to go and say, the love that God has for me, that he continues to lavish on me. Do you think I really am going to care what somebody is writing in a newspaper when the only job they can get is to cover high school sports? I mean, I don't know who that person is, and then it's not even apparently a good paper. They couldn't even survive. I mean, why would I care what that person thinks? But we do. And I do. And John reminds me that when I'm worried about criticism or when I am focusing on fear, or when I or anyone experiences anxiety, it's because we put so much more focus on that other thing. And John's saying, look, see, behold, ponder, meditate on the love the Father has lavished on us. It instructs us. Love the Father has lavished upon us is not just a love that encompasses and is flowing upon us. But John goes on further and he says, in his great love, the Father has made us his children. Two middle school brothers were fighting. In this particular family, the two brothers, one was a biological child and one was an adopted child. The first thing you hear in in the argument is that the biological child, using the wisdom of a middle school boy, and says, well, oh, yeah, what do you know? You were adopted. Don't know what that means. I've heard it. But again, we're talking about the depth of a middle school boy, or at least one that was more like me. The other boy, the adopted boy, was a little wiser because his response was, oh, yeah, well, All that means is mom and dad chose me. They're just stuck with you. In no way is God the Father stuck with Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. He is the one who is the radiance of his glory, the one in whom the Father has great joy. But you and I are his children. Do you know we are no less his children than Jesus Christ? Do you know you are no less loved by the Father than is Jesus Christ? That's hard to swallow. It even seems kind of wrong. But it's true. I mean, think about it this way some of you here are adoptive parents, some of you have both biological and adoptive children, and you know there's no difference in the love that you have for your children. Christ is the only begotten Son, and we are adopted children of God. God's love that he lavished upon us, his love is no different. Now, I'm talking about God's love. We're not talking about the pleasure, uh, and anyone who has more than one child realizes love is consistent. Pleasure varies with the wind. Christ is perfect and we are not, God's love for us is unchanging and is no less than the love that he has for Jesus Christ, who is his only begotten son, who is perfect in every way. God's love for you is the same. And in this little anecdote, it's a beautiful picture because it does show us the two ways, it reminds us of the two ways by which anybody becomes a child of any parents. Reminds us of adoption, which is a beautiful concept that God chose you before the foundations of the earth to be His child, who He would pour out His love. That happens through Christ, that He opened your eyes that you might believe in Christ. Christ's blood was paid to, that was shed to pay the price that was necessary to purchase you back to belong to God. You are God's, by God's law, by the law of the universe. You truly belong to God. Paid and secured. As beautiful as that is, ironically, it's really not, I don't think what John has in his mind about adoption here. Because if you back up to verse 29 and verse 2, in chapter 2, he says this, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We'll get to the righteousness part here in a moment. But John's in his mind, seems to have not, Adoption of children, uh, becoming children, but being born of the Spirit of God. That's what makes you his child. Because he he regenerated you. You are born of him, you are born again, born of the Father. Now, if this is not mind blowing, you're not listening. Because there's only two ways in which somebody can become a child of God. And if you are in Christ, you are both. First, because of Christ and God regenerating you, which is, in that case, making you his own. You're born of his spirit that you might believe and repent. You're born of God. And then because you are born of God, he adopts you afterwards. Think about that, parents. You've given birth to a child, clearly your child, and then you say, whatever the state requires to make sure that I adopt a child, I'm going to make sure I go through all of that too. You are doubly a child of God. I'm not sure of the theology of that kind of language, but I am very sure of the principle. If you are in Christ, you have been born of God and adopted by God. You are His child. There is, there is no way... Around that. Sometimes people get uncomfortable with that. And there certainly is a lot of confusion about it. Because what I hear most of the time is, we're all God's children. God didn't seem to think so. Scripture is very clear that every person, no matter who they are, is born after the image of God bears God's image and therefore has value and dignity and should be treated with such. That their rights should be protected, that justice should be extended, and that we treat them with love as if we are dealing with anybody that has the image of God. But God nowhere says that everyone is my child. He's very clear here. Those who are in Christ, those who have believed, you only believe because he gave you the gift to believe, because he's been born... You, who believe, are God's children. And it's still, even with that distinction, it can make us uncomfortable because it seems rather arrogant to say, I'm God's child and -and so-and-so may not be. But that doesn't make sense either. Any more than being arrogant about who your parents are, you might be proud and you might even be obnoxiously proud about your family heritage, but it's not like you chose to be born to those parents. So it's not like, look at the wisdom that I had. I was born into this family as opposed to this one. I mean, if anybody talks like that, they, well, I don't know how to say it. They're morons. I mean, that's, they, they, they shouldn't be worried about what they think. They, they don't know what they're talking about. And so why would it be any different for us? We didn't choose to be born of God. God loved us. He made us his children. Not because we were better. Just because he loved us. And so we are children of God. And John says, that's what we are. But John also says something else. As God's children, we are distinguished from the world or from everyone else in the world. 1 Peter 1.23, Peter talks about us. We receive an imperishable seed. A lot of commentators or contemporary commentators kind of use the phrase uh, as an illustration saying it's That seed is kind of like God's DNA. It's not a historical theological concept. One reason is because nobody knew what DNA was until relatively recently. But it's just saying the imperishable seed that God puts in, in, as we are born of his spirit, it's the DNA of God. Inevitably, the characteristics of God are born out in those who belong to him. I think of it this way. My favorite all-time Disney movie is The Ugly Dachshund. Those of you who know me and know the movie can probably figure out why. The movie is a takeoff on the ugly duckling. But in this particular case, you have a couple who raises dachshunds. The wife shows the dachshunds. They take the dachshund for uh, birth uh, litter uh, to be birthed at the vet's office. And the vet, speaking with the husband, said that he also, at the same time as the dachshund had delivered that he had a Great Dane fam- uh, of his own that had delivered but too many pups and so asked if he might consider taking the Great Dane home as well to nurse uh, along with the Dachshunds until the Great Dane came to maturity. Again, those of you know me know that I love Great Danes. I've had five in my life. Those, we received a notice uh, uh, this past week uh, with the Great Dane that we had to give up when we moved here. Um, our caretaker passed, uh, sent us a note so that he, he had just died this week, but we, um, we only saw him in his strength, so that part was good. But because of my love for Great Danes, I love the movie. Now, in the movie, the guy takes the Great Dane home, but he knew his wife wasn't going to go for that, so he just doesn't tell her that he brought a Great Dane home. <laughs> and so here you just have this basket of five, great, five Dachshund puppies and a Great Dane puppy. Now, Great Danes are very different when they're little and born. I mean, they're relatively small. One of the Great Danes we had, we picked up, Uh, probably six weeks old, and Carolyn carried it back uh, on her lap, and it was a surprise for our kids. And The only thing that really would set them apart, or the primary thing, is that their paws are big and would indicate something is going to come out of this. I'm always amazed with Great Dane Rescue Leagues that they get Great Danes, and inevitably, I'm wondering why would somebody give up a a perfectly good Great Dane? The most common reason for Great Danes to be given up at almost about a year old is people who got them, they didn't know they were going to get big. And all of my sensitivity, I told the Great Dane rescue workers, workers, anybody who bought a Great Dane and didn't know it was going to get big, they're too stupid to be able to vote. But, But nobody asked my opinion on that. Anyway, back in the movie, what takes place is this Great Dane comes home, and the wife looks at this and says, this one's odd looking. And he still doesn't tell her. And as they grow and they grow, the Great Dane is growing more into a Great Dane and the Dachshunds, and they look more and more different than everything else until he finally has to confess. And, and the movie is uh, just kind of an exaggeration of the real life with a Great Dane from then on. But it does demonstrate an important principle. What else would a Great Dane grow up to be other than a Great Dane? It doesn't matter the environment. It was raised like a dachshund. It doesn't matter what the one caring for it thought it was. They thought it was, she thought it was a dachshund. It's a Great Dane. And a Great Dane will grow and get big and carry Great Dane characteristics. You who are in Christ have the DNA of God. It doesn't make you better It makes you different. It may not look as different at one point, at the beginning point, but over time, the characteristics of God are going to develop in your life. And that will make you different from the world. The difference that we have from the world is not our trying to be different. The world says this, I'm going to do this, which is the mistake that many Christians make. What John says is, look, the world doesn't recognize who you are because they don't know who your father is. So how could they possibly know who you are? They just evaluate you and me on the basis of our values and our character, the way we choose to live our lives as if the world is the normal standard for things, and we don't fit that, and they just think we're weird. Faithfulness simply says, be who you are in Christ, the one who God has made a child because of his great love. And inevitably, there will be a change because we will conform more and more to the characteristics of, of God because we can't be anything else. And in this passage, John is pretty clear. He gives a couple of indications, two words or two con- concepts that uh, about where we would be distinguished. One is that we know God. So We look at the passage, and again in, in verse uh, 1, he says, The reason why the world does not know us is it does not know Him. and yet we do. It only makes sense that we know our Father. The sense that we know our Father means that we have a relationship, and we know about. We know who our Father is. We know what our Father is like. We know. There's no other word for it other than theology. We, we have knowledge of God, that He's revealed Himself. And so to be a child of God and know nothing is really to essentially say we're ashamed of our Father. We don't know anything about Him and yet claim to have a relationship. That just doesn't make sense, and yet we have a generation of Christians who have been raised to assume theology is a bad word and the study of theology will just make you bored. The only thing it's good for is helping you go to sleep. And sometimes that's true. But that depends on the teacher, not the subject. Nor is it just head full of theology. It is the relationship with God. We know Him. But The second thing that John talks about, we'll go back here to verse 29, which in many ways can be a confusing passage. The second thing revolves around righteousness. If you know that He is righteous, He meaning Christ, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, at a quick glance, it'd be easy to paraphrase that to say anybody who does good is born of God. But that would be doing a disservice to the language that God inspired and that John has given. If that was the case, it would be reasonable to say that choosing to be good, doing good, the way that we become Christian, the way that we have God as our Father, is by doing good things. Because it seems to be an assurance that If you know that he is righteous and that we know that anyone who practices righteousness has been bored. So we would assume that anyone who does good must be a Christian. Except that's not what the passage is saying. And the word righteousness needs to be rightly defined in order for us to understand. Righteousness is not the same as doing good. Righteousness includes doing good, but righteousness is not the same as doing good. Righteousness in its proper definition requires right faith that propels right action a good action that is not propelled by faith in Christ and who he is and God and what he has done, no matter how good, no matter how noble, no matter how beneficial, it is not righteousness because it's not propelled by faith. I'm not minimizing the good. God uses people who are not believers all the time in his common grace to do all sorts of wonderful things in this world. It's not righteousness, not by its definition. At the same time, right faith that does nothing is certainly not righteousness either. One is not righteous by believing in Christ and not having an affair sleeping with his secretary. That is not righteousness. That could be self-preservation. It's certainly not evil, but the lack of evil is not the same as righteousness. Righteousness is right action, right action which is propelled by right belief, belief in the truth. Now, back up in this verse, if you know that he is righteous, Christ is righteous. Now, in what way is Christ righteous? Now, if we just use kind of the broad way, we just attribute it to him. Well, here's how Christ is righteousness. Christ is righteous. He, knowing the heart and character and the glory of God the Father, propelled by the glory of the Father and the situation that you and I are in, who the Father loves, he acted, giving his life, laying his life down, being crucified on the cross, and then rising up again that we might have life. His action was going to the cross, voluntarily laying down his life, which was prompted by faith that he had in his father and understanding of our situation. That's the righteousness of Christ. John's pointing really to the gospel with this definition. If you know that he's done that, then you will recognize that anyone else who practices righteousness, in other words, who has right faith, and that faith in what he has done leads you to minister to the poor, to care for the hurting, to encourage others, to build, to t- whatever it is that you're called to do because your faith is propelling you to the benefit of others, that is righteousness. It requires both the action and the faith. And then when you have the right definition of righteousness, this verse then makes sense. If you know that Christ is righteous and you know what he has done for righteousness, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born because the only way you can have right faith is that God had made you born of God. That is the distinction. Not our effort, not even our labors. But the faith, which is God's DNA in us, that allows God's character and values to develop over time, distinguishes us from the world or from everyone else in the world because we are loved by God. It's not a point of arrogance. It's a point of God's defining fact. John says in this passage, he's speaking to people who are either confused, who are like me, who struggle and feel like spiritual orphans at times. I know the reality, but I still feel that I need to measure up. I have to succeed. Because if I don't succeed, then I not only let you down, I let God down, and how long is it going to be before I get rejected? That's the confession of one who knows that I'm a child of God but live with the same mindset as an orphan, as Annie, who has to begin on the steps and earn my keep so that I can have even a taste a part of this beautiful thing when it's been given to me simply because God has lavished it upon me, because he loves me. John's instruction to us, three words in this entire section that we read. It begins in verse 28. He says, children, abide in him. That means he who has a hold of you, hold on to him, connected. He lives in you, you live in him. You are inseparable union with Christ. It's just our focus, our intent. It's a challenge to the spiritual disciplines not being good. It's a challenge to recognize our constant need of the gospel, our constant need of Christ. That's how we abide in him. We're able to do that if we follow the advice in verse 1. Behold the love the Father's lavished on us. When we ponder it regularly, meditate upon it, it strengthens our abiding. And in verse 3, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Hope here is different, Bible hope is different than our hope. Our hope is this. Oh, I hope so. It means I have no idea what's going to take place, but that would be great, wouldn't it? Hope in the Bible is a promise that is assured that you have just not yet received. It's the check is in the mail. You'll have it tomorrow. You don't have it, but it's without. I'll avoid cracks on our postal system. It's guaranteed. It's already. It's already yours. John is saying, abide, behold, or or see, and hope. And everyone who hopes in what Christ has done as a demonstration of the love that is ours and abides in him because of that, by doing that, you purify yourself because Christ is pure. I pray that we would grow purity not because of our efforts, but because we look what God has done and we abide in him and we have this promise, which is our hope. May that be ours until we all grow to full maturity in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you and bless you for the word that you've given that we who are your children might be reminded of both the cause and the benefits. I pray for the heart that finds this difficult to receive, You would break down the calluses because of hurts in the past. They may feel the comfort. I pray for the heart that just assumes this and saying, of course, and never allows it to deep take root within and well up within them that the heart meets the intellect. I pray this for us all. that We would simply learn to rest in you, to rejoice in you, and to grow to be like you. Pray this with the assurance of the promise of Christ himself and your word through John. I pray it in Jesus.